I have directed Secretary Connolly to suspend temporarily the convertibility of the dollar into gold or other reserve assets. From now on, the pound abroad is worth 14% or so less in terms of other currencies. That doesn't mean, of course, that the pound here in Britain, in your pocket or purse or in your bank, has been devalued. Analysts have been warning of the dollar's impending doom. Dollars, traders here working the phone say a lot of their customers are freaked out, waiting to see how low the Dow will go. Do you smoke, Paul? Uh, no, I don't. Me neither. I don't smoke cigarettes. I don't smoke cigars. And smoke a pipe, 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 pipe. This is Multipolarity, charting the rise of the new multipolar world order. De-dollarization. Multipolarity's been talking about it for months. Now it's hit the mainstream. What started on the edgier fringes of econ Twitter and challenger media outlets is now being earnestly discussed by people like US Secretary for the Treasury, Janet Yellen, President of the European Central Bank, Christine Lagarde, and investment bank royalty like JP Morgan. This is a complicated subject, though, that a three-minute slot on CNN or an 800-word column in the New York Times can't properly explain. So in this special episode of Multipolarity, we're going to examine and explain the subject of de-dollarization with enough depth to offer listeners a comprehensive view, but in simple enough terms for the layman to understand. We'll discuss the history of the present monetary system, the reasons we've got into the problems we're now in, and what the future might hold for a de-dollarized world, what might come after the dollar, and how will it work? So, Philip, I, I think the best place to start this conversation is in the aftermath of World War II, when the Allied forces, America, Britain, Canada, and uh, France, sought to try to reconstruct the global trading system and the global monetary system at a conference in a, a, a resort in the east coast of America called Bretton Woods. What happened there and, and, and what monetary system did it create for the world? Bretton Woods takes place in 1944. We won't talk too much about what happened in the interwar period, but effectively there was a lot of chaos. There was a lot of financial chaos. There was obviously the Great Depression. There was the 1929 stock market crash. The critics of the post-World War I system, mainly being John Maynard Keynes and basically those people who listened to him, they needed to kind of look at a, a comprehensive new monetary and financial system. I guess this kind of rested on the assumption that an awful lot of the chaos that had taken taken place in the interwar years was at least partially caused by economic and financial dislocation, which I think is probably accurate. So in 1945, effectively, John Maynard Keynes was the main star of the show, really. It was, it was his ideas that the entire thing was based on. He was the British delegate. On the American side, it was Harry Dexter White, who was kind of a senior civil servant, as far as I understand it. Um, I think he had a position in the administration at the time. Dexter White was basically a Keynesian as well. I, I think pretty much everybody at the at the conference uh, were Keynesians. And um, they wanted to basically insulate the post-war world from financial chaos and from trade dislocations. And these things were interconnected. So what came out of Bretton Woods was the, the Bretton Woods system, in a sense. The US dollar was chosen to uh, rule the roost. Now, that was not un uncontroversial. And we might talk about the alternatives on the table at the time. 
why they weren't pursued if they have meaning for the future uh, later. But the dollar was chosen. Short answer on that is basically the Americans wanted to dominate the system and they had the financial and military power at the time to get their way. The dollar was backed by gold, pretty standard gold-backed currency. That meant that for every dollar issued, the US had to, at least in theory, have gold in the bank to back that up. Now, in practice, it was actually every dollar that flowed abroad for trade required to be backed by gold. But we can talk about that more in a moment. It was a gold-backed currency. The rest of the Western world was pegged to the dollar. So that meant that the currencies were in some sense, pegged to gold. You could, in theory, freely exchange your franc, your French franc, your sterling, or your German Deutschmark for a dollar, and then you could exchange that dollar for gold. A little bit of a complicated process, kind of shows why people didn't actually go and get the gold very often. The people at Bretton Woods considered letting the Soviet Union join, a kind of lost part of history. And there was actually a lot of support for the Soviet Union to join, especially among the more progressive elements in the Roosevelt administration. I believe his vice president, uh, whose name I can't remember, was actually quite sympathetic to the Soviet Union, famously. Um, Harry Dexter White was later uh, alleged to be a, a Soviet spy for se- uh, passing secrets to Russia, uh, to the Soviet Union. Um, I think it's more complicated than that, but it's an ongoing debate as to whether he was, again, showing some sympathy. So there was um, there was a discussion about letting the Soviet Union, and if they'd done that, it would have changed the world, in my opinion, but they didn't. They decided uh, to start the Cold War. That was Those those uh, those cogs were already turning. So out of that, we, we got the settlement, and basically, that system, as I just described, it last for, lasted from 1945, or I think actually 1948 is is the is the real year it comes into being, and it lasts until uh, 1971 or 1973, depending on who you ask. So, so let's kind of dig into that a little bit, just kind of briefly to explain. As far as I understand, the trading system at the time, trade cleared, that is, you know, balances cleared essentially in dollars, you know, big ticket items, things like, do- uh, you know, food and, and and oil and things that cost a lot of money. Those things cleared in dollars, essentially. They were priced in dollars and they cleared in dollars. And then the dollar itself was backed by gold and other currencies were pegged at a fixed rate to gold. So whereas now, if, you know, if, if people think that the, the pound is worth too much or too little, then it moves down or up, depending on that. Like the pound is freely traded and freely floated. But that wasn't the case between 1945 and 1971. They, essentially, the pound was fixed to the price of, uh, of the dollar. So you could always, in theory, go to trade a pound for X number of dollars. And in order to do that, there were capital controls, i.e. you couldn't send money into or out of a country freely as you can now. You know, we see now with the City of London, hundreds of billions of dollars or, or, or pounds or euros moving in and out of the city on a daily basis. That wasn't the case back then. There were capital controls that prevented that. That meant that the Bank of England, instead of just targeting inflation, could also target a value of the pound to the dollar and by selling or buying reserves could manage the value of the pound against the dollar, which itself was managed in theory against the price of gold. That's approximately how things worked. Uh, would I be right in saying, I mean, I'm a, I'm a layman here. Is, it, is that a kind of an accurate description of how it worked? 
Yeah, with with the addition that the countries that were pegged to the dollar could also revalue their currency uh, if their trade uh, if their trade deficit was growing too large and they were scared of a, of of gold fleeing to the United States, let's say, or even to another trading partner, they could um they could announce a new price of their currency relative to the dollar, and you saw revaluations take place again and again, but. They were quite controversial because the the population saw this as losing wealth. Now that's not quite accurate. It's more complicated. Uh, that, that's than that, kind of devaluation rather than revaluation, though, right? Sorry, I'm, I meant revaluation, not in the technical sense, but in a kind of revaluing. Okay, yes, it was yeah, almost yeah. always, almost always devaluations, as far as I understand it. I I can't think. Maybe the Swiss revalued upwards at some stage, but it was usually devaluated. But I think that this gets to a kind of a problem with the Bret onward system that. Obviously, when two countries trade, um, I mean, in a very simplistic term, I mean, countries are all trading with multiple other countries, but it's easier to think about as kind of country A and country B. When those two countries trade, one might have a kind of competitive advantage or another one might be economically badly run or, you know, it might be its currency might be overvalued, making its its exports too expensive or whatever the case may be. uh, a kind of a, an unbalance can can form, like a large and chronic unbalance can form between the trade of the two countries where one country has a trade deficit and the other country has a kind of a, a, an equal and corresponding trade surplus. And I guess one of the problems with Bretton Woods 2, this, this, this economic system we've described between 45 and, uh, and 71, was that the adjustment needed to bring that trade back into balance because you know trade imbalances are unsustainable over the long run because they have to be funded by ever greater debt in the deficit country to to to, to bring the currencies into balance everything was was kind of pushed onto the the debtor nation the the, the country with the current account or the or, or the trade deficit there was no corresponding adjust adjustment imposed on the surplus nation and that caused kind of economic problems i mean would that be fair to say especially in a a fixed currency system you're essentially forced to kind of grind i mean in theory kind of a process of grinding wage price deflation until you regained competitiveness would that be fair yeah i mean that certainly happened uh it happened most notably in britain whose economy became known as the stop stop go economy um, where they'd uh, where they basically it was a very Keynesian run economy, very state led. Uh, they'd engage in economic stimulus and try and reach full employment. At a certain point, ec- uh, imports uh, outstripped exports, and they'd have to jack up interest rates, revalue, devalue the pound, and usually create a recession. It became known, known as the stop go cycle. It was very irritating to uh, to British uh, politicians, especially because it tended to determine whether they'd remain in office or not. <laughs> I will say that uh, it's not. Um, I'm not a huge fan of the Bretton Woods system, but it, it, it's very hard to cheat in a sense. Um, you can't kind of run a big mercantilist policy like Germany do now in the euro or like China did in the mid 2000s. You can't really do that. So an awful lot of the time, if you're running these imbalances, it's showing a structural weakness in your economy. So um, I'm not saying that that's justified. There are ways where the international community could have got together. We maybe can discuss that later um, to help other countries kind of pull themselves up. But there is a credible case 
to be made for saying that if you were stuck in a stop go cycle, if you were constantly devaluing your sterling relative to the dollar, it was kind of something wrong with you. It wasn't really the other guy's fault. And that's how it came to be perceived in especially in the 1960s and especially here in Britain. Right. So you had this period of Bretton Woods, um, probably set up because uh, the you know the U.S. was the great creditor nation in 1945. It had all the industrial capacity. It was selling to the world. Um, if anybody was going to be forced to readjust their economy, it was going to be the deficit nations, which certainly wasn't the U.S. But then we have several things happen in the 1960s. Uh, John F. Kennedy, Democrat president engages in a huge sim- stimulus, one of the biggest tax cuts in uh, U.S. Uh, history. But then you have Lyndon Baines Johnson and the Great Society, a, a, a large expansion of welfare in the United States. At the same time, you also have the Vietnam War going on, which is causing really huge expenditures. You have a draft of all young men, and they're getting sent off to Vietnam by the by the hundreds of thousands. This all costs money. And the United States suddenly has a fiscal deficit. It can no longer guarantee that can exchange dollars for gold, essentially. in I think in 1971, I'm right in saying, Richard Nixon finally bows to the inevitable and breaks the link of dollar to gold. He says, you can no longer come to the gold window at the Federal Reserve, as it was called, and exchange your dollars for gold. It's now good. The dollar is now going to be a freely floated currency. And that ultimately caused, I, I believe it was the U.S. Secretary of the Treasury at the time, it might have been the Secretary of State, um, to respond to complaints from uh, allied nations who were in the, the, the dollar trading system. When they complained about this, the uh, U.S. Secretary of Treasury responded that the dollar is our currency, but it's your problem. So what came after that? Philip, like what replaced the Bretton Woods system? Well, I I think just to draw a line under what you just said, because that is generally how it's perceived. And uh, as many things with recent history, it tends to make the US seem like they were in control of the situation. That's not actually the case. The US were a little hubristic when they adopted the Bretton Woods system, and they thought that they'd never fall subject to the forces that other countries would experience. What we just talked about, structural problems with your economy, overspending and so on. In 1945, they were the, they were they were the, you know, they armed the world, they had all the, you know, the economy was growing great and they couldn't imagine that it would ever deteriorate. But by the late 60s, early 70s, it had. And the the key um the key straw that both broke the camel's back in 1971 was actually that the French were sick of funding the US war in Vietnam. They were bitter about the whole thing because Vietnam used to be effectively a French colony. Um, they were annoyed that America were were were, were engaged in this war. Um, and they were annoyed that they were effectively paying paying for it uh, through exports to the US that weren't being refinanced. So um I think it was President. President Pompidou sent a, uh, a, a, a naval warship to New York to demand the gold, and this is the beginning of the end of the gold standard. Just want to put a put a uh, highlight that because this was not an American decision. It was not at all an American decision. It was a, a, it was a series of mistakes, a little bit of hubris, and they were eventually knocked off their perch by the French. Um, important to understand because you say what came after it. 
Well, I'll tell you, in the early 1970s, what came after it was confusion. It's very, very easy to read backwards and go, oh, the, the new paper dollar-based system was totally predicted. And all these big brains in the Nixon administration discussed it and strategized and did what they did. And then they ended up with this new system, this paper dollar system. Um, that wasn't the case. It was a mess. It was an absolute mess. And nobody knew it was going to come from it. And actually, an interesting little piece of microhistory that I think underlines this is that the the new system that was emerging wasn't actually understood until a Marxist economist who's still alive today called Michael Hudson, he was very young at the time, wrote a book called Super Imperialism, describing this new system. And his book apparently became a bestseller inside the Beltway. The, 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 the people in the civil service and so on were so flummoxed by what was going to happen next that they ended up taking a Marxist critique of what they were doing and turning it into official policy. That's a small microhistory, but I think it's fascinating and not well understood. So what comes out of it? Well, it's what, what Hudson described. I think he wrote the book in 75 or 76. Basically, the, there were no alternatives on the scene uh, in terms of alternative reserve currency or, or currency arrangements. And so people just kept kept going as they were going. They kept uh, trading like they were trading and they kept using the dollar. And the Americans came to see that this allowed them to run run amok in a sense uh, economically they could they could basically do whatever they wanted they could run enormous trade deficits which they started doing especially in the 1980s the 70s were a little bit of a strange time there was a lot of stagnation high interest rates and so on so the the new power of the paper-based dollar system wasn't really seen in the 1970s you had to look very close to understand what was going on which is what michael hudson did and wrote a book about it but by the 80s, it was pretty clear that the new paperback system was allowing the government, and this was the Reagan administration, to run enormous both government deficits and then the government deficit fed into the trade deficit. Now, why was you know the arch-conservative Reagan running these enormous deficits? Well, for military spending. They wanted to outspend the USSR, and you know this partly, I think it's a little exaggerated, but it partly leads to the collapse of the USSR. Um, so so, so can 80s, I just, um, they kind uh, of I'm learned. sorry to interrupt you there, Philip, I, like, you know, we often hear about like trade deficits and maybe like, you know, the US gets to run a trade deficit. Like it's some uh, great bonus uh, for the US that it is allowed to run this trade deficit because everybody has to use dollars, whereas the Americans can just print them, right? So like if Britain wants to buy a whole bunch of shale oil from Texas or a whole bunch of gas from Qatar, Britain needs dollars. It can't print those dollars i mean in theory it can't print those dollars so it has to earn them either by selling some of its goods for dollars and then using those dollars to buy oil or by selling debt by having you know or, or by buying dollars with pounds on the on the exchange it has to earn them somehow and other countries have to earn these dollars whereas the u.s doesn't have to do that and when we say the u.s can therefore run a huge trade deficit would i be right in saying that Essentially, what a trade deficit means is that you as a country are consuming more than you're producing. You're buying or, or importing more than you export. Or another way to think about it is that you're spending more than you're saving, right? Like whichever way you want to think about it, you're essentially getting more than you've earned in theory. And that allows you to live a kind of a richer lifestyle than your actual production uh, that your actual production justifies, right? It's almost like, I know household analogies are really terrible for economics and 
so many false economic ideas come from comparing it to a household. But it's almost like kind of being able to live a better lifestyle than your wage justifies. Is, is that fair enough? Yeah, I mean, that's effectively what happened. But just to really, again, draw a line under because it's important, in the 1980s, they were using this spending power, as it were, to build up probably one of the greatest post-war militaries in the world. In the 1990s, they switched to what you are talking about, which is just purely living beyond their means. They were they were just using this, what was called one time an exorbitant privilege of the dollar, to just simply allow their manufacturing to deteriorate, import stuff increasingly from China, prior to that from Japan. They stopped producing stuff, you know, kind of this, the, the symbol of the early 90s was kind of a Sony Walkman. It was produced in Japan. They were running a massive trade deficit with Japan. So the kind of like, if you remember the kind of consumer ads from the time or even the films at the time, that kind of like prosperous mm-hmm. late 80s, early 90s with the Sony Walkman, that's being financed by trade deficits effectively. So it was at that point, I think, that the U.S., um, start to start to live beyond their means with the dollar system. Um, and that's worth highlighting because it, it if 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 we're we're going to argue that this is coming to an end, it didn't last that long. It was only 20 to 30 years. Uh, yeah, well, I mean what we've got here is in, in, instead of this system where uh, during Bretton Woods all currencies were pegged to a specific value of the dollar and central banks managed that value as best they could and then the dollar was backed by gold. Essentially, what develops during this period from, say, uh, 1971 to 1998 is you have the dollar floats freely. It's no longer backed by gold. And most currencies then themselves float freely on the markets, right? So capital can flow freely in and out of a country. And, you know, the country central bank just targets inflation. They move to this inflation targeting regime. And slowly over that period, you start to see, you know, because of this free flow of capital, you start to see trade balances expanding. But that really comes home in 1998. In 1998, the Russian Federation defaulted on debt. This interacted to a certain degree with uh, the Asian market. And the Asian market had like a huge crash. And countries like South Korea, for example, but uh, other countries like Thailand as well, they had to turn to the International Monetary Fund, which was one of the cornerstone institutions of the Bretton Woods system that was set up in uh, 1945. And uh, South Korea and, and all of these Asian countries, they had to turn to the IMF, who imposed really harsh austerity and, and got involved to a certain degree into the politics of those nations as well. And... They kind of decided, and I know this is a gross simplification, they decided that they were never going to put themselves in the hands of the IMF again. And what they were going to do is they were going to make sure that they always had huge dollar reserves in order that if they were ever in a crisis, if ever there was a debt problem or a banking crash or a harsh recession, they were always going to have plenty of dollars to ride out the storm. And the way that they accumulated those reserves is they financially repressed their home economies. They ran huge trade surpluses. And by running these huge trade surpluses, and they accumulated massive amounts of U.S. dollars, which they used to buy U.S. sovereign debt, i.e. U.S. treasuries, which allowed America to fund, in turn, these huge trade deficits from their end. And you start to get through this process 
really big kind of grotesque almost imbalances within the global trading system from like 1998 to 2008. Is that a fair assessment of of how things kind of evolved? Yeah, so as 1998 is not a bad year to say it, the new paper-based system goes into overdrive, total overdrive. The imbalances become completely grotesque. The causality is basically like you say. There's also a lot of neglect at this point from the point of view of American management. They may have been a bit hubristic in 1945, but they had a plan. They may have um, kind of chanced their arm in 1971, but they managed it well. At this point, I, I don't think that there's credible thought behind this. This culminates in the largest current account deficit, that is trade deficit, basically, that the US has ever seen uh, in about 2008. It uh, peaks at about 6%, minus 6% of GDP, which is a very, very large number for a current account deficit. And this brings us up to the moment that the whole thing starts to fall apart, and that's 2008, 2009. Because what we're seeing today, and we'll discuss that momentarily, is certainly the beginning of the end of the US dollar system. But since 2008, 2009, it's been in this in this liminal space. Because what happened was that the, the massive imbalances that had built up had necessitated enormous amounts of private debt accumulation in the United States itself, mainly shouldered by the US household sector, borrowing to run the, uh, the housing market. Big bubble collapsed, started collapsing in 2006, brings down the banks in 2008. And what happens there, and the, we all know that story, but the part of the story that we don't know is on the international side. And this needs to be better understood. So there's a um, metric in macroeconomics that's not well known outside of kind of specialist trade macroeconomics. Actually, most, even some macroeconomists don't really get it. It's called the uh, net international investment position, the, the NIP for short, N-I-I-P. And what the NIP is basically is it's a, it's a measure of how many foreign assets you own. So in America, how many foreign assets abroad is owned? Now, that can be anything from a British government bond to a foreign direct investment pumped into Japan. It can be, or anything in between, equities. It can be uh, German equities, anything, any assets. So the NIP is the amount of assets you own relative to your liabilities. And your liabilities are just the flip side of that. How many government bonds the Chinese own, how much FDI is flowing from Japan into the United States, uh, how, how, many, how much US equities the Germans own, right? So the NIP is the, is the stock accumulation of that. It's, it's the ownership, basically. And in, in the middle of the 2008 crisis, the NIP peaks uh, the deficit now it's always a deficit you, the 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 assets that are are generated here are 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 generated by the current account deficits that you're running because this is effectively this is effectively the debt that you're building up with the other countries and we call it assets a little confusing but that's what it is because it's not just government debt it's equities it's fdi inflows it's everything right now mid 2008 that peaks at about 30% of GDP, which is quite large. Now, today, it's uh, closer to 80, so it's not large in retrospect. But at the time, that was pretty unprecedented, and people thought it was pretty large. Now, what happens really interestingly in 2008 is that the value of all those assets just tanks. 
equities fall. I think the S and P falls something like sixty per, or maybe it's forty percent. It's forty. The S and P is the kind of like the index that aggregates various blue chip stocks in America and gives an idea of where the overall stock market is going. Right, just for. Yeah, it, it's genera- It's the top 500 stocks. Generous yeah. to call them all blue chips. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> but they're top, for, <laughs> top there's a lot of junk in there. Uh, top 500 stocks. Um, so what happens is in 2008, everything crashes. All these assets lose value. And what that does to the NIP is it closes it. So it goes from about um, minus 30% of GDP um, to around minus 18% of GDP. And what that means is that the foreign holders of U.S. assets, remember, they have these assets effectively in exchange for actual goods that they're sending to the U.S. They've seen about a third wiped off the value of these assets. And at this, so, so basically, they've been sending goods to the U.S. And the U.S. hasn't been sending as many goods back. So the balance, the, 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 the kind of additional earnings that these foreigners have bought, they've kind of closed that balance by buying U.S. assets, whether that be like U.S. treasuries, which are like sovereign debt, or whether it be equities, which is like shares in companies, or whether it be like, you know, I don't know, a portion of a NFL club hypothetically speaking right like it's anything isn't it it's it's what they buy to to close that distance between what america's buying and 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 what they're selling in return correct that's right that's right so this is what they get for their goods they get the ownership of the nfl team they get um blue chip stocks or not so blue chip stocks on the s&p they get whatever and that stuff just lost about a third of its value pretty quickly within a few months after 2008 and I, this, now this is never really discussed, um, this, this wipe out of the American NIP position. And I, I think it's not discussed because everything carried on as normal afterwards. As I said, the NIP is currently standing at around, well, today it's around uh, minus 60% of GDP. It peaked or, or it, it bottomed, I should say, at around uh, minus 80 just before stock markets started to reverse there in uh, in late 2021. Um, but it's very large now. So, so people have kind of forgotten about this. But the people holding those um, assets at the time didn't forget. And they said, geez, that's a very large drawdown <laughs> in assets. We were led to believe that the United States was giving us these assets and they were good as gold. Yet these investments are highly risky. And by risky, I just mean that they can experience massive drawdowns, 30% on your entire book. But equities were more than that. Um, and so and so this kind of this left people in a very strange position, the, the foreign holders of these assets, because they said, this stuff isn't good, good as gold at all. And the American financial system is not this incredibly robust titanium titan. It's it's really fragile. It's it's overextended. It's over leveraged. People are doing all sorts of things behind the scenes that are arcane. We don't fully understand, and they seem to result in these blow ups. Um, so that kind of that really damaged the credibility of the I guess post nineteen seventy one system. And this is when you see not all countries, but many China being the most important because China was the was running the largest trade deficit with the U S. The Chinese said surplus. Chi- sorry, uh, Chinese uh, the largest surplus with the U.S. Um, the Chinese said we're not relying on that anymore. So between about you know 1995 and 2008, the Chinese were were engaged in a mercantilist policy where they are relying for a great deal of their economic growth 
on running huge trade surpluses with the United States. After 2008, they said, not doing it anymore. That's not sustainable. We don't want to own as many of these assets. It's ridiculous. And so they switched from a an external an external growth function to a domestic investment growth function. And just to note here, a lot of the misperceptions around China that we talk about on the show all the time are because people, especially in America and in the West, all think we're still living pre-2008. They still think China is living on our largesse, our monetary largesse. It hasn't been true for 15 years. So this whole thing, this this is the beginning of the shift. The, the, the shift is always going to be seen, as we'll talk about in a moment, as uh, as being the seizure of the Russian reserves. But this, this created a situation where everyone wanted to get off the train anyway. And everyone was just looking for when it might slow down enough to kind of, you know, throw themselves outside the nearest door and roll roll to safety. So what we've got here in this period between 1998 and uh, 2008, and after 2008 as well, I think it's fair to say, is you have a global trading system that's increasingly out of balance. It really is, a, you know, the imbalances, say, within the Eurozone between Germany and the rest of the Eurozone, uh, cross-Pacific between China and the US and Korea and the US and you know Britain's deficit, Australia's I mean, they're really becoming grotesque in their imbalances between this system. And then you have this huge blow up in 2008 where you know, certainly the, the you know, the US, the UK and Europe, but pretty much the whole kind of financial system became very close to having a heart attack. All of these surplus countries where which closed the gap between the large quantity of what they were selling and the smaller quantity of what they were getting back from uh, the US, they closed that gap by buying US assets, essentially. And suddenly they realized that these assets weren't as safe as they initially intended. So you've got this kind of this financial system that looks increasingly vulnerable. You've got a global trading system, which is increasingly kind of unbalanced and out of whack and clearly not working as it was intended to. You've also got a realization among surplus countries that perhaps, you know, the US isn't the kind of the 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 cast iron safe where they can uh, put their assets. And at this moment, uh, the United States decides to respond to the Russian invasion of Ukraine by confiscating Russian reserves. So when Russia had run large trade surpluses with the rest of the world, it had parked a large number of those reserves in U.S. assets, and, and the majority of them were parked in U.S. debt. It had basically said, we'll buy U.S. treasuries or we'll buy you, you know, the sovereign debt of countries from the Eurozone, and that's how we'll keep our reserves and we'll keep them safe. But the Western response to that was to confiscate them, which was to a certain degree a kind of a default on that debt, like the Russians had bought this debt and now they weren't going to get either the either the uh, interest payments or the principal back at the end. They say, no, 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 you're not getting that because we don't like your, your foreign policy actions, so we're going to kind of just take this, essentially, or we're going to freeze it at least. And this really causes, like, a crack up like because now any country who thinks at some stage in the future it might have a foreign policy that the US government doesn't like 
finds that its savings are at risk. It cannot hold them in uh, and feel safe to hold them in the U.S., in U.S. currency, anywhere in the U.S. financial system. Essentially, the full faith and trust in the U.S. government has been broken. The spell's been broken. That's right. And I think it's really worth just thinking through how such a decision could have been made. I mean, I alluded earlier that by the mid-2000s, when the U.S. was running a trade deficit of minus 6%, the mortgage market was going crazy. Wall Street was you know, buzzing like a flytrap. I mean, this was a pretty irresponsible period, in my opinion. I think the people who make decisions at a deep level in the US had lost the run of themselves. They've become overconfident. You can kind of understand it in the sense that, you know, things were working, I guess, pretty well. The economy was still growing pretty fast. The corporations were doing quite well from, you know, a lot of the manufacturing that was being sent from China was under their brand names a lot of the time, which remains true today. So you can kind of understand the forces that drove this. I mean, all they had to do in this period was ignore the imbalances. And the economists helped them with this. <laughs> there were very few economists at the time who said that any of this was a problem. And the only economists that did were basically very fringe Marxist economists. Ultimately, even the post-Keynesians, even if they were at you know, Cambridge University, the odd one, and you'd have a few of them kicking around in the United States, they weren't taken particularly seriously. And the, um, the kind of Timothy Geithner or uh, Larry Summers wing of the economics profession was very much ascendant at the time, and they buried their head in the sand. Again, I think this was an enormous mistake. It's uh, it's something that needs to be relitigated. After 2008, there was a lot of soul-searching about the, the status of the economics profession. I uh, wrote a book on it and uh, kind of got known as a blogger at the time because of it. And it never came to anything, and the day of reckoning never arrived. But that's effectively what happened. Now, what happened with the Russian seizure is much more difficult to understand because by February or March of 2022, at the very least, the economics profession, for all its faults, had come to an understanding that the post-Keynesians were largely right. There was a lot of talk about Hyman Minsky and so on, who was a post-Keynesian economist, and um, and they realized, now they never really got the imbalances thing, but they got that the financial system was a lot more fragile than they'd assumed during the heyday of the Bush era or the Clinton era. So that is why this decision is very, very mysterious to me. I still don't fully understand it. I mean, I think it was just hysteria. I think it took place in the, in the midst of a panic. But it's worth underlining what they did here. The credibility of U.S. assets was still pretty shot from 2008. Now, markets recovered. They did, and they recovered quite spectacularly. And where we stand, where we stood in 2022 is roughly where we stand today, which is, in my opinion, there's another bubble, um, which is going to unwind in the next 12 to 18 months, frankly. But uh, there's a lot more self-consciousness about this. I mean, I wasn't in markets in the run-up to the 2008 uh, crash, but I know some very prominent people who were. I mean, I used to work not to put too fine a point on it, for Jeremy Grantham, who called the crash very famously. And I know what happened at the time. There was Everybody was, was gung-ho. They all believed in the new uh, secret source. And they, you know, people who said that there was going to be a crash were basically shunned. They were, they were called cranks and crazy and whatever. 
That is not the case this cycle, which I did work in financial markets for years. In this cycle, that is not the case. Everybody was totally skeptical about the run-up in asset market valuations. And everybody was partaking in it, but everyone was kind of looking over their shoulders or, you know, after two beers at the bar, they'd say, yeah, it's, come on. I mean, it'll unwind eventually, but we, we can still ride the coattails while the Fed pumps this thing. I mean, that was the general sense. So what I'm trying to make out here is that that there was a self-awareness this time around about the uh, the nature of the system, how how hollow the financial system probably was, and how it was all running on Fed funny money, really, on quantitative easing and so on. And foreigners understood this too. Now take that background and say, you know, the US Treasury decided to do what you just summarized, to, to introduce this new layer of risk into the dollar, this completely unmanageable type of risk because it has nothing to do with the economy. It has to do with your foreign policy and your geopolitical place in the universe, in a sense. They introduced that risk at this time. I mean, it really is just worth sitting back and just thinking about. And I think historians will will take an awful lot of time to think about this in the future. One of the really important points that we need to make here is that a lot of economists, there's you know, Michael Pettis and then Paul Krugman, for example, perhaps most prominently, they argue that there will be no de-dollarization or de-dollarization likely won't happen because the dollar is the only alternative because the Chinese and the Japanese and the Koreans and the Germans are, you know, and the Saudis are addicted to, to, to a, a, an economy run based on trade surpluses they need a, a, a country to absorb those trade surpluses, uh, but also the, the the convenience of the dollar, the the the, ang- the you know the Anglo common law uh, legal system uh, under which the U.S. financial system is run, the depth of the U.S. Uh, bond market and the U.S. equities market, and the liquidity of those markets. All of these things combine to make it economically inviable for a contender to come along and displace the dollar or even for a system to run in parallel with the dollar like the these things make the dollar a kind of like an like an insurmountable market leader it's the kind of it's the google search engine of the of the world financial system or the or the amazon of the world financial system there's just it, they've they've got so many advantages built in that nothing can assail it economically or financially i think our argument at multipolarity is that that's plain wrong, not because their arguments are wrong, but because they're viewing it in the wrong way. They're viewing this, they're viewing de-dollarization as an economic and financial and trade question. And that's the wrong question to ask. In fact, de-dollarization is going to be a trend that's driven by geopolitics, not by economics or finances. It's a geopolitical question. And as soon as the US essentially said, look, we'll default on any debt held by any country whose foreign policy we dislike enough, you can't predict how US politics is going to go. You can't predict what foreign policy they don't like enough. You can't predict when you'll have a kind of a, a like a, a conflict that you view as a nation as existential. So that becomes a huge risk in holding US dollars then. So it's a, it's a geopolitical matter as much as it is, a, or even more than it is, a financial matter. So now what we've got is we've got not only Russia, 
is now conducting a huge. I, th- I believe I'm right in saying eighty percent of its trade now is done in yuan, not just with China. I mean, its trade with China has expanded enormously over the last year. But you know, it's also trading, for instance, with, with India in yuan. Okay, you also have, for instance, um, the I believe the the UAE currency. The, I think the real is the real, isn't it? That's being used by trade with India as well. You also have, for instance, Argentina um, using the yuan increasingly for bilateral trade. The Brazilians under Lula are starting to explore alternatives to the dollar. You have this explosion of not just kind of like idle consideration of alternatives to the global financial system, but countries actually taking concrete steps to move away from the dollar. So I think what we should do now is is kind of consider what the alternatives are. I mean, how could the global trading system work uh, with a kind of like as as it moves into away from the dollar as the as the kind of the lingua franca of uh, global financial transactions? What what could replace the dollar? I I think it's fair to say that it's not going to be like a global euro like you can use to pop down the shops and buy your groceries or to pay for your pint of beer or your glass of wine if you're in Southern Europe uh, at the bar. It's going to be a, a, a unit of international exchange. And I think what we've actually got to do is kind of go back in history again. I mean, we started this conversation at Bretton Woods. I think we have to go farther back in history again and to discuss some of the other financial systems. So, for instance, there's been rumors that this unit of exchange that some of the BRICS countries are working on, uh, China, Russia, and uh, Brazil, I think, um, might be backed by gold. So I think it might be useful to look at some of the alternative systems that were there before Bretton Woods, before free-floating currencies, and before 2008. And, and, And I think the place to start is the classical gold standard, which was a 19th century and and kind of early 20th century way of trading. Now, it's important to say that the the classical gold standard wasn't like your coins were made out of gold. You know, you had a shilling and it was made out of gold or a certain percentage of gold. And it wasn't even necessarily that you could exchange your your pounds or or your dollars or your francs or your marks for like gold bullion. It was really a medium of exchange where countries would trade trade with each other and their trade balances would be cleared in gold bullion, right? So let's have a quick overview of how that works, if possible, Philip. Going to have to clarify slightly to discuss this of what you've just said. It's true that this is going to be a geopolitical shift. and That's the kind of proximate cause here. But the underlying structural cause is still trade, okay? And that's really important for what type of system we're looking at and how this emerges. Just to be really specific, and, and I, I, I don't want to take up too much time on this, but I think it's helpful for people because they'll doubtless hear these arguments that you've just said about deep capital liquidity markets and financial blah, blah, blah. This stuff's all rubbish. Even if your mate tells you about this stuff and he works in finance, like chances are he's a currency trader and he looks at everything through a currency trading lens. The only thing that matters is willingness of countries to use alternative um, alternative uh, arrangements. That's all that matters. And that choice to use alternative arrangements 
grows as trade grows between those countries, if you see what I mean. If all countries are just trading with the US, I'm not saying that is the case now, but if the US is a massive component of their trade, they don't get as many opportunities to try other arrangements. So what is happening now is that is the proximate cause of the geopolitics is, is meeting the structural cause, which is the trade has become much greater in countries that aren't greatly benefiting from the US-led system. So what does that say, for example, about a gold-backed system? Okay, well, whatever emerges, it's going to be chaotic, first of all. And second of all, it's, I don't mean that in terms of there'll be financial chaos. I don't think there will. I think there will be financial chaos for different reasons because we have massive asset bubbles at the moment. But the transition here in terms of currencies shouldn't be particularly chaotic. There's no reason to think so. Um, but it will be chaotic and messy in the sense that people won't have a clear view of what's happening until it's been clarified, uh, almost until it's happened. It's the old Hegel quote, um, the the owl of Minerva flies at dusk. You only know what happens after it's already happened, in a sense, and then you right. It, it, it it'll be a bit like that kind of ten years between nineteen seventy one and nineteen eighty one, right, where nobody quite understood what was going to replace Bretton Woods. It was a kind of incohate system that evolved to the kind of free floating, uh, open capital account inflation targeting system that we stuck with since like the early eighties right through until the present day. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, and, and this will be more difficult to understand, and there'll be more experimentation than there was 71 to 81, if you want to call it that. But yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, it won't become clear what it is until it's already fully formed in a sense. Um, what? So the gold arrangement is what you just said. It's simple enough. It's time-tested. It um, clears trade, right? So it ensures the trade imbalances between the parties doing this type of trade don't grow too much. And in that sense, it's quite advantageous. Now, it can also be quite harsh. So, so, but, but how does it do that, right? Because, so, I mean, let's say, I mean, let's say country A sells $100 of uh, goods to country B and country B sells $80 to country A. So the difference between the, the imbalance between the two of them is like $20. So both of their currencies are pegged to a specific value of gold. So in that sense, there would be a ship that kind of travels from the, 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 the deficit country to the surplus country with $20 worth of gold on that ship. And, and then that gold would then become part of the surplus country's reserves. And in doing that, it would force the deficit country to essentially raise interest rates to attract investment and maintain the, um, the, the the credibility of their currency as backed by gold. This would cause a kind of a deflationary system, which would allow them to regain competitiveness. No, it wouldn't. It wouldn't. The mechanism would not be interest rate hikes. And you're not. You're not. No? You're not silly to say that because economics textbooks will actually tell you that it's not. It's not. That's not. Okay. Well, works. this is great. This is why I need you to explain this to me and everybody else because. I think people don't quite understand how the gold system works. No, and and you're like if you look at an economics macro textbook one hundred and one, they will tell you about that interest rate nonsense, and they'll tell you about there won't be enough money to lend domestically because of the money multiplier, because there's not enough gold. It's all rubbish. Okay, if you look at history, it's very very simple, uh, much simpler than that. And in macroeconomics, the simpler explanations are actually usually better, despite what the textbooks will tell you. The 
if you're running the $20 trade deficit, like you're talking about in that situation, let's say you're running it with me and we're both countries, then you owe me $20 worth of gold at the current exchange rate. Now, if you've only got $10 of gold in the bank and I call your bluff and say, send me the gold, let's talk about the call your bluff in a minute because it's also important. If I say, send me the $10, load it up onto a ship and send it over, uh, oh, sorry, $20, and you go, oh dear, I've only got 10 well, then you have to half the value of your currency relative to the gold. You're, you're in sense defaulting on your payment. You're not quite because the rules of the game allow you to do that. And that devaluation will drive down the purchasing power of your, of your currency and you won't be able to buy that extra $20 worth of stuff next time. Now, in terms of the bluff, this is very important too because uh, listeners will no doubt encounter somebody who's been listening to someone like Peter Zehan, and they will tell you, this will never work, because if you're if all these ships are going all around the world, there'll be piracy, and the Americans can shut it down with their amazing navy and all this nonsense, okay? Most of the time, no ships will set sail. It'll be a nominal balance in the central bank. And if somebody's lying about how much gold they have, which is pretty difficult to do because you can kind of track gold flows pretty easily, but if they're lying about it or suspected of lying, then the ship will turn up. That's what happened in, in whenever it was, 1970, I think, when Pompidou sent the uh, French battleship to New York. But these are usually symbolic gestures, as with Pompidou. This is to call, call the bluff, okay? So this generally won't happen. What will happen is central banks will be managing things, and they'll be, lo- they'll be keeping a close eye on if they can pay, theoretically pay the bills. And if they can't theoretically pay the bills, or they're getting to a point where they can't theoretically pay, pay the bills, They'll revalue their currency in terms of the existing gold that they have relative to the gold stock. And then the currency will usually go down. I keep using the term revalue. I mean that just in a sense of it could be an upward valuation or a downward valuation, Um, but usually a downward one. They'll downward revise it, and then the currency can't buy as much stuff. So if you ran the trade deficit last year, you won't be running it this year. Is is that relatively clear? Yeah, I think that's very clear. And I I mean, I guess a... Country could, you know, also trying to maintain the value and, and and to maintain credibility. I think the the Bank of England like famously fought for the credibility of the pound in terms of its it being literally as good as gold. And they right? always and, lost, and that's the key with yeah. standards. They, and, yeah, and all these people who say, "Oh, they'll fake it," or "You'll have to send the ships and pirates." Well, it's all nonsense. Okay, we have centuries of this. You always lose if you fight your gold stock. <laughs> Right, absolutely. So I think that's the kind of advantage of the gold standard is that essentially it, it, it forces countries, both both surplus and deficit really, but mainly deficit, to stay within a trade balance so that you don't get these kind of grotesque deformations of the global trading system. However, the gold standard does have its like quite serious downsides. It was called by John Maynard Keynes a barbarous relic, for example, and he was very keen to get Britain off the gold standard in the 1930s. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, when he was uh, president of the U.S., removed the U.S. from the gold. Everybody came off the gold standard, essentially, and it, to a certain degree freed economies, right? It, it allowed for a, a return to growth in economies. What is the problem with the classical gold standard? Like, how does how does it uh, negatively affect economies? How do you get into this so-called gilded cage of the gold standard? It's punitive. I mean, that's the key to the gold standard. That's why it was seen with such skepticism by more kind of humanitarian-oriented people like Maynard Keynes. 
it's punitive. If you run out of gold because you're running too large a deficit with your neighbor, you have to do things to your economy that are, are unpleasant, okay? You either have to massively slow your economic growth, which, you know, cause a recession, basically. That's the stop-go trick that the UK trying to still doesn't work. Uh, or you devalue, you devalue your currency. And if you devalue your currency, people become poorer, not just in terms of they can't go on holiday as easily, but also in terms of all the ex- the imports that they're buying become more expensive so inflation goes up so it's it's a it's tough medicine right that's that's tough medicine um and and that's why and and some people would say and i think there is something to it that the gold standard is unnecessarily deflationary that is that if a country can't kind of keep up with everybody else um, it tends to have to impose punitive measures over its, on itself over the long term. That means that it can't grow as fast. It can't accumulate wealth as fast. And the more radical interpretation of that would be it could actually keep some countries in a box altogether. Um, I mean, think of the simulated gold standard in in in, uh, in the eurozone, very similar to a gold standard, and look at Greece. I mean, they've they've tried to kind of you know for their sins put on the hair shirt. And you know, beat themselves with a whip on the back, and it, it's look. They've rebalanced their economy. The financial situation's not too bad, but I mean, the country's not going to grow. It's not growing. So, so at the extreme, a gold standard could be. I mean, not to use a cringy pun, but it could be kind of a, a gilded cage. You know. Okay, so after countries came off the gold standard in the 1930s, you had the Second World War, and then we returned back to where we started this conversation, which was the conference at Bretton Woods and the outcome of that conference, which was the Bretton Woods II trading and uh, monetary system. But there was a battle at Bretton Woods. There was a great kind of intellectual clash between John Maynard Keynes and Harry, uh, Harry Dexter White, who basically disagreed about the system that was going to be that was going to run the, the 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 Western global economy after World War II. White won that argument because he was representing America and they got their way because Britain was very weak. But after the 2008 financial crisis which we spoke about, a lot of commentators went back and looked at John Maynard Keynes's proposals and actually looked at them extremely sympathetically and essentially said if we had chosen John Maynard Keynes' system, we might not have found ourselves in this situation. So tell us, Philip, what did John Maynard Keynes propose at Bretton Woods and what is the Bancor, which we often hear about? Maynard Keynes' idea was to um, keep the upside of the gold standard, that is, maintain trade balances and uh, avoid the kind of chaos that we've been seeing for the past 20, 30 years. Um, and that is about to completely destroy a lot of our economic arrangements. Um, keep the good side of that, which is avoid the trade balance, the good side of the gold standard, and eliminate the punitive aspect. Eliminate the notion that you had to kind of beat yourself down if you weren't keeping up with the pack. And so what he proposed was quite simple. Actually, it was partially adopted in the form of the IMF. Um, you, you need a, a, a single currency unit. Now, this is a kind of a notional currency unit. You'll never be able to actually get access to a, a note 
that says the Bancor on it. He called this unit the Bancor. You'll never get a note that says Bancor. You'll never be able to go to anybody and say, hey, can you loan me five Bancor? Like, it doesn't work like that. It's a notional uh, balance sheet entry held by a centralized institution, the IMF. I mean, it was supposed to be the IMF that did this. And the IMF has something like this. They're called SDR, SDRs. They're special drawing rights. Um, they're not used for a Bancor arrangement. But the, the Bancor is actually, the institutional structure is there for the Bancor because Keynes designed the IMF. Um, and it was the the the, the current model, uh, which is the American dominated model, together with the SDR arrangement, is the kind of um, you know using Keynes's design for Harry Dexter White's purposes. So what the Bancor does basically is that you accumulate. Um, so if you're running a twenty dollar deficit with me, that accumulates not in terms of gold because there's no gold backing. Although there could be gold backing if you wanted it to, but it would be purely symbolic. That would accumulate on a on a balance sheet at the um, IMF, and what the IMF would say is, you owe him not twenty dollars, but you owe him twenty bancors. If it's a one to one exchange rate, if the exchange rate's different, you know, two to one, then it's uh, ten bancors or whatever. And here's the really tricky part: that rather than me having to to rather than you having to put on your hair shirt and start whipping your own back. What actually happens is the IMF turns around to me and says, you've been a naughty boy. And I say, well, why have I been a naughty boy? I'm an upstanding economic citizen who's running a trade surplus with this, you know, down and out pauper. And they say, no, that's not how it works. You're taking advantage of the system. You, you should be allowing that guy to catch up. And you're not. So what we're going to do is we're going to take that $20 that he owes you. And we're not going to give it to you. We're going to reinvest it in his economy so that next time he can produce that $20 worth of stuff himself. So it's a very humanitarian project. Um, it's, I mean, we can talk about the politics if you want, because clearly uh, this is a classic kind of macroeconomics thing that people will see it as unfair. Right, you're the pauper. You owe the money, but the kind of a lot of the kind of Keynesian revolution, in a sense, was to try and get away from moral notions of indebtedness and try and show the structural issues of indebtedness and try to solve them. But that's basically how the Bancor would work. And there's no reason to think that it wouldn't work today if you had enough buy-in from enough countries. So I think the, uh, I mean, from a layman's point of view, I'm not an economist. I, I haven't, uh, thank God, uh, read any book on economics, uh, an economics textbook, I mean. But from a layman's point of view, the the, the Bancor system seems quite beautifully elegant. So, like you, you essentially have a, a single global central bank. Uh, of course, there would be national central banks as well. But you have a global central bank, whether you want to call that the IMF or the World Bank or the uh, Bank of International Settlements, as we've got now, like whatever you want to call it, it's a global central bank. And if I run a twenty dollar deficit with you, then essentially, in ordinary circumstances. I would have to transfer that kind of $20. I mean, that would go on as a, a $20 deficit on my side of the ledger and it would, or a liability, and it would go down as a $20 asset on your side of the ledger. And in Keynes' system, both of those would go on the kind of the, the balance sheet at the central bank. But beautifully, they would both be charged interest. <laughs> so you would be charged interest for running a deficit, but you would also be charged interest with for running a surplus. And what that would do is it would give both countries, so not just the debtor nation, 
or, or not just a deficit nation, but the surplus nation would both have an incentive to rebalance their economies insofar as trade was concerned and therefore reach a balance. So it wasn't like we're going to screw everything onto the, onto the deficit nation because really a surplus isn't a sign of a kind of a moral good. It's a sign of a deformed economy, right? Like it's a sign of an economy that's not in balance. So why should they get all of the benefit and the, and the deficit nations get all the bad stuff? It shouldn't be a moral story. So, the Keynesian system suggested. So what we'll do is we'll punish them both equally. And by doing that, they'll make adjustments to their economies because they won't want to pay what is essentially a fine. And by making adjustments to the economy, that means that that surplus essentially will end up being reinvested, recycled back into the deficit nation. And that additional investment will increase their productive capacity and that will allow them to come back into balance. And I think what's interesting about the Bancor system, actually, is that a lot of quite serious people reconsidered it as a way of essentially making sure that the global financial system doesn't get completely deformed in the way that it has done since 1981 and at a very accelerating place since 1998, but also in a way that doesn't create this kind of this real pain of the classical gold standard and also the potential to as you say put countries in a complete box like put countries in a in a depression that they can't uh get out of i mean interestingly um you know i think the um the head of the people's bank of china the 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 the, the chinese central bank mm-hmm. between 2012 and 2008 he he said don't ask me to pronounce his name i'm very sorry but he was the head of the people's bank of china between 2012 and 2018 and he praised the keynes bancor idea and he actually said that the imf should really consider looking into this as a way of reordering the economy. And uh, quite a few Americans said so as well. I think Timothy Geithner, the head of the um, the Treasury Secretary in the Obama administration, also said that the Bancor system was good. Now, listening to some of the rumors, and it is very much rumors at, at this present time, speculation, financial press talk, what we're seeing at the moment is a lot of experimentation with bilateral a trade done in home currency. So the Russians and the Chinese, they trade in rubles and yuan. The, the, the Indians and the Russians, they trade in rupees and rubles and yuan and, and so on and so forth. I don't think for various reasons the yuan is quite ready to take over, although it's clearly already taking a bigger share of the global market. It's still not quite there yet. But I do think there is the potential to have some kind of international medium of exchange, perhaps itself backed by gold, and then to which other currencies are pegged, and maybe something like the Keynes Bancor system coupled with a bit of kind of modern, you know, electronic, digital, maybe kind of, you know, blockchain, uh, ledger kind of stuff. Something like that might emerge through a process of experimentation and trial and error. Yeah, I just want to clarify the the summary that you gave there of the Bancor with the um, punitive interest rates, uh, I've heard that chopped around. That is, as far as I understand it, that's not Keynes's original idea. There's a lot, I know it's floating around, but they, there's a lot of uh, Keynes interpreters out there who aren't actually interpreters. They just like kind of like making Keynes's ideas, I'd say, unworkable and kind of crappy. Um, 
Keynes's idea was to literally recycle the surplus. Like it was, it was, I mean, somebody might say, oh, it's Taft. Like it was literally to say, you're not allowed to run surpluses. We're taking that money and we're investing in that guy. Um, the, the versions where it's like, oh, we're going to charge you a slightly higher rate of interest if you've run too high a surplus. Um, I mean, maybe Keynes talked about those ideas, but they weren't the core of the idea. So just if anyone comes across that, just be aware, this is a real problem in Keynesian economics of, you know, I would say poachers coming into the to, into the preserve and, and stealing things, actually, um, and then kind of like not not killing the pheasant properly and presenting it full of shotgun lead. Um, in terms of what will actually happen, I, I, I think something like what you're saying is probably true. Um, getting the Bancor to work takes an awful lot of goodwill and buy-in because, um, because uh, you know, as I said, you are recycling a surplus, which people think they're morally entitled to or something like that. It seems more likely to me personally that this will revert to some sort of an either gold-backed or commodities-backed system. Now, maybe it'll evolve into something more humanitarian in the in the longer run um you know maybe around the BRICS bank anyone heard of that i mean maybe there's a plan there who knows um but the the commodity and, and current and gold back system uh is a lot easier to sell right i mean just in terms of like getting buy-in for it it's like imposing clear rules gold's a shiny metal everyone likes gold you're never going to toss any gold down the toilet um, it just, it, it makes more sense from a political point of view. I mean, the 1944 Bretton Woods Conference was a highly centralized event. It had, um, you know, some of the world's best intellects there, and they still couldn't get the bank court through because, frankly, the Americans wanted more power. And that just says something about the nature of politics and geopolitics and so on. It's very hard to get people to agree on a kind of a humanitarian-based system. So it seems more likely to me that there'll be a lot of grasping around. People will use different currencies for trade. They'll experiment and so on. And eventually they'll find a kind of a, an asset-backed system. And an asset-backed system would actually be a lot more interesting than gold in many ways. And a lot more functional because places like Brazil have assets. You know, the, the real, the Brazilian real is effectively set in line with iron ore prices, for example. And a lot of the countries buying into this are kind of gold or, or oil producers or iron ore producers or, you know, whatever. And so you could kind of, um, you could kind of ba base it around that. That's never been tried before, but I can think of ways that that might work. But yeah, I think it'll, I, I think more likely we'll see a lot of experimentation over the next 10 years and it'll settle onto something like a commodities back system. And I think the real thing to watch will be if that takes place between, let's say, the BRICS countries or something like it, and they establish this, this good currency, and we in the West are left with our paper currencies. I think that could have absolutely massive implications for us. We can't really discuss that in, in, in depth at the moment, but I mean, just imagine it. It's the old Gresham's law. It's good money drives out bad. So we should be very cognizant of this. And the final thing I'd just say on that is if somebody comes up to you and convinces you that central bank digital currencies are going to solve this, like tell them to take a hike. This doesn't mean anything. It's just more paper money. Like it's, 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 it's deranged. Okay. If the world is moving in this way, it's very simple to think in these terms. There'll be a currency that is backed by something and that promotes balance. And then there'll be these leftover paper currencies from the Bretton Woods system. And that should be kind of scary for us. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that listeners should bear in mind is that when any changeover like this happens, 
if it doesn't happen after a huge kind of conflag- uh, you know, conflagration like the Second World War, where you bring together all of the world's finest economic and financial minds and sit down and thrash out a system that you all agree on, if that doesn't happen, you, you get this kind of slow process or kind of incohate new system forming where there's, you know, we'll try this, that doesn't quite work, we'll try. I mean, already, for instance, the Russians and the Indians, they've tried uh, trading directly in rupees, for example, but the Indians can't quite sell the Russians enough in return for Russian hydrocarbons and natural resources. So the Russians suddenly have got like loads of rupees that they can't deal with. So they've had to shelve that idea and move towards trading in yuan, for example, real. And you'll get a lot of this happening over the next kind of five, ten years or so. And during this time, there'll still be a lot of trade in the dollar and the uh, through the dollar system. But we're already seeing quite sophisticated alternative payment systems springing up in China. They've got SIPs, for example, in Russia, they've got that MIA system. And, you know, a lot of countries are are developing their own systems. And they're also starting to experiment with alternative trade systems. Eventually, they'll find something that works. And as this takes off, by necessity, they're simply going to have to find uh, a, a medium of exchange for clearing uh, various trading balances. And, uh, and as they experiment and work with this, a lot of people might say, well, everyone was talking about de-dollarization. It's been two years, and yet here the dollar is still the number one trading currency. No, that, that, that that's not how it's going to work. It's not going to be something that shifts overnight. It's going to take time. And eventually they'll search around for ideas and they'll find what works essentially. And if they do find something that works, let's not forget that all of these countries are providing pretty much all of the natural resources that we use, in certainly in Europe, but largely in the West. Hydrocarbons, metals, timber, food, all of this kind of essential stuff that you need for the very basic provisions in life, but also is the, is the building blocks for an industrial economy on top of that. But they're also increasingly the industrial powerhouses as well. Like China is the manufacturing powerhouse in the world in the same way that Russia is the natural resources powerhouse in the world. Um, Brazil has significant natural resource exports. There's soya beans, there's iron ore, there's you know all, all, all sorts of things from Brazil as well. So all of these countries have that. And if they find a currency that's maybe backed by a kind of a basket of commodities, maybe backed by a kind of a mix of commodities and each other's currencies. I don't know how it's going to work out. We've offered some alternatives, the classical gold standard, the Bancor. There are things that we haven't talked about. But once they do that, it will be a very powerful currency indeed. And I think it's something that people need to bear in mind. It won't happen overnight. There'll be lots of trial and some error as well. But once it's there, in theory, it could be a very powerful currency indeed. And People who say that this is an economic or financial matter, they're asking the wrong question. It's a trend driven primarily by geopolitics and ultimately to solve trading issues as well. Yeah, I just emphasize really briefly before we close, there was uh, a slightly amusing meme that went around uh, during the last stages of the Donald Trump campaign in 2016, 
which had some sort of a frog on a train, and it said, uh, there are no brakes on this train, Mr. Trump. <laughs> That's where we are here. Uh, this isn't going to change. There's no stopping this. It's It's been baked in for, you know, this was always going to happen. Some of us are more surprised, myself included, that it's happening so fast. I kind of had a 2050 time horizon on this in my head until the seizure of the Russian assets. We've greatly spread, sped this up through bad decisions, but it's inevitable. There's absolutely no stopping this. No Chinese sanctions are going to stop this. No, nothing. Okay. So it's going to happen. It is going to happen. It's happening right now. And we need to figure out a way, we in the West, assuming that most of the listeners are in the West, we in the West need to figure out a way to deal with this, a realistic way that 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 might mean that we're not on top anymore. But, you know, it doesn't mean we have to be on the bottom either. But there are no brakes on this train. And that's just the reality. If you want to buy a foreign car or take a trip abroad, market conditions may cause your dollar to buy slightly less. But if you are among the overwhelming majority of Americans who buy American-made products in America, your dollar will be worth just as much tomorrow as it is today.